0: Well, folks, uh, we are in the letter of Romans, as you know, and it's an important letter. Um, the truths in it are so important that if you if you get if you get those truths right, um, you you probably won't be wrong <laughs> about many 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 things. It's just stock full of important things, and as a result, we've been going pretty. Slow, and tonight is is no different, just just a few verses, uh, but, but there's much in them. Uh, Paul wrote this to believers in Rome. He had not yet been there, but he very much wanted to go there. In fact, he expressed this again in Romans chapter one, verse thirteen, and that's where we'll begin tonight, Romans chapter one uh, verse thirteen. And in that verse, uh, Paul said to the believers in Rome, make no mistake about it, said he, I really want to come to be with you. In fact, I've planned on doing so on more than one occasion, but have thus far been prevented. And then he stated his objective in coming. It it wasn't to tour the beautiful city of Rome. It was that he might obtain some spiritual fruit. He wanted to receive encouragement from them, we saw in prior verses, but he also wanted to use whatever resources he had to um, edify them in the faith and also to share the gospel in Rome and obtain spiritual fruit, that is, of an evangelistic kind. So this was his heart's desire. He made it at this point as far as Corinth, and I wonder if he wondered whether they were thinking, Paul, if we're so special to you... Why don't you come the rest of the way? Why did you stop short of Rome? Why are you in Corinth, which is present-day Greece? And so he, he makes it clear here, I wanted to, but have thus far been prevented. And then he says in verse 14, I'm a debtor. That's essentially what he says. I, 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 I'm obligated. I'm under obligation, both to Greeks and to barbarians, non-Greeks. Uh, both to the wise and to the foolish. Paul essentially is saying, I feel obligated to every people group on earth, Greeks and non-Greeks. Greek speakers in the day thought that those who did not speak Greek or who spoke it poorly were barbarians, unsophisticated, uneducated. And so Paul is uh, identifying that distinction inappropriately made by the people of the day, and he's saying, it doesn't matter to me whether you're educated or not, what your ethnicity is, what your race is, or gender, uh, what your religious background is. He said, I feel obligated uh, to all people to share the gospel. He felt he owed the debt to all people groups on earth of proclaiming the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. And so he says in verse 15, and so for my part, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. That's what he said in verse 16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. When I read it, I paused to think what in the world would have even given Paul any cause to be ashamed of the gospel? Why might this even be uh, a temptation to him? Why would he be ashamed of it? And then I thought, well, the gospel is about a relatively poor Jew uh, from a relatively obscure place uh, who was a carpenter by trade and who ended up being crucified. And this message preached in Rome would, to some, have been rather unattractive, even foolish, a message about a a Jew who was crucified. Uh, The Romans had no special affinity for Jews on the one hand, and in addition to that, they saw crucifixion to be the most degrading form of capital punishment available. This was a penalty reserved for the lowest of... Of the lowest criminals and so what kind of a message is this to preach then and even now that we have a sin nature and the sin problem was solved by a Jew <laughs> from a place nobody ever heard of perhaps who never attended any famous schools, wasn't uh, 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 trained in rabbinical schools of thoughts, never wrote a book, never left his land. Uh, a carpenter, a tradesman who ended up being crucified, uh, publicly humiliated uh, by virtue of this form of execution. So you could see that Paul might have been tempted to be ashamed of the message. If you think about it, my goodness, uh, uh, it gives you pause for thought. But Paul says, I'm not ashamed of it. Why? Uh, The verse continues, because it's the power of God for salvation. That's why I'm not ashamed of this simple yet powerful message because it has the power to change lives. Now, the Romans were ambitious for power, so he is really speaking their language for sure. But no power on earth, not even the power of the Roman Empire, could do what the gospel could do. Rome had military power for sure. But this is God's power to save. It is not a power. It is the power of God for salvation. In other words, there is no other way by which renovation of a sinner can be produced contingent upon that sinner's faith appropriation of the gospel. When a sinner trusts in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, that sinner's sin problem is solved. The penalty of sin is taken care of. The power of sin is progressively being taken care of, and even the very presence of sin will eventually be totally eradicated from our lives. Paul said there is no power like that. In fact, it's the power of God for salvation. The gospel is not advice, it's power. It isn't advice given to people about how they could renovate and clean up their lives. No way. It's the power of God to deliver anybody who believes from the bondage we all have had to our sin nature. Rome's armies could destroy for sure, but God's gospel could save. To destroy is an easy thing, but to save is a divine work requiring divine power. And Paul said, I'm not ashamed of it. It's the power of God for salvation. To whom? To everyone who believes. And I just love that word. I know you do, to everyone. It's the greatest all-inclusive word of all time. Everybody here feels left out either because you've got the wrong color, the wrong gender, the wrong education, the wrong name, the wrong background, the wrong appearance. And this lays all that to rest and says... Nobody needs to be disqualified. This gospel, God's power to totally renovate your life, give you new life with him, an entirely new status, no longer an adversary but an adopted son or daughter of God who possesses a pardon that will not let you go, that's available to everyone who believes. And that word believes lays to rest every religious system on earth. It in one word to everyone who believes, it tells us the access to God's salvation is by one thing and one thing only, belief, faith, trust in what the Savior has already done. It lays to rest our temptation to try to bargain with God on the basis of our goodnesses, our good deeds, our merit, our personal efforts. No, no, no. That is not the road to victory with Christ Jesus. It has to be faith, belief. Everyone who believes in the death, in the burial, in the resurrection, evidence, the empty tomb. And much more. Everyone who appropriates those truths by faith, that one is empowered by Almighty God to be saved. Everyone who believes, it's magnificent. And then something happens, which I have found in my studies to be rather peculiar. Many commentators and preachers of this passage stop now. They say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And they put a period in there. But Romans 1.16 ain't done yet. Not in my Bible, not in yours. And so I'm perplexed by the permission commentators and many preachers feel to put a period where God intended a comma. There's more to be said. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, says Paul. Why? Not. It's the power of God for salvation. To whom? To everyone who believes. Now, tell me if this says this in yours, or maybe I just have the Jewish version. It says to the Jew first and also to the Greek, does it not? By the way, by Greek, it means the non-Jewish nations of the world. Does it not say something like that in yours? But I challenge you to look up this verse, look co- at commentaries, listen to sermon series through Romans, and it is amazing to me to see how o- often uh, this particular phrase is left down. So, I had to ask myself the question, why? Why is the phrase left down? And the conclusion I, I came to is that I think many commentators and preachers think it's because... The Jews are now left out. Uh, and I could see the point. I mean, the gospel was offered to my people first. My people generally did not respond to it very well. We turned from our own Messiah. And therefore, I could see it's reasonable. Since we rejected our Messiah, he rejected us. He's through with us. And therefore, let's not mess around with the Jews anymore. Let's just move past that, this phrase real quick. But we can't do that because of verses like this. Romans, we'll get to this maybe eventually. Romans chapter 10, oh my goodness, years from now. (laughs) (laughs) Romans chapter 10, uh, verse 21. But as for Israel, he says, all the day long, I've stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Indeed, my people are disobedient and obstinate. I make no defense. We have none. But don't miss the fact that God persists in stretching out his hands every day, even to a disobedient and obstinate people. He has entered into covenant with Israel, made promises, intends to be glorified through descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and so says all day long. I've stretched out my hands to this people. In other words, Israel's unfaithfulness and rejection of the Messiah has not caused the Messiah to be entirely done with Israel. He's not finished at all. One day we'll get to Romans 11 maybe where it says, and all Israel will be saved. He has a plan. By the way... The last book of the Bible is Revelation. It talks about 144,000 evangelists going about telling people about Jesus. It specifically says it's, they consist of 12,000 from each of the tribes of Israel. Now, if God is through with Israel, how could it be that the last book of the Bible identifies 144,000 Jewish evangelists who go wild during a a horrific period of time on earth, being martyred for the faith, bringing glory to the Jewish Messiah. So, folks, you can't conclude God is through with the Jews, even though most Jews at this time have hardened themselves to their own Jewish Messiah. Okay? So then what does the phrase to the Jew first mean? Some say it's simple. It simply means the gospel was offered historically to the Jew first. The Jews did not respond to it very well. Therefore, God, subsequent to offering the gospel to the Jews, he's through with the Jews. Now has offered it to the Jews, to Gentiles. First the Jews, then the Jews. That's it's cute. Did you? Anyway. Than the Gentiles. So what we're talking about here, the phrase to the Jew first simply means sequence, sequence. So you have first, and if it's just, this just means sequence, then you have second, then you have third. So first in line to hear the gospel with the Jews, that's all it means. Second, the Gentiles, possible. However, if you look at that word first, you see that word first to the Jew first? Now, folks, I'm going to get a little technical here, but there's a point to be made. H- hang in there uh, with me because this, this is important. I see the word first. In the Greek, it's the word protos, like proton, protos, protos. So in theological dictionaries, you could look this up, and you could look up the word protos, and, and here's what most of them say it means. It means leading, foremost, prominent, most important. Uh, The simple dictionary definition of the word seems to nullify the idea that we're just talking about sequence. It seems to be talking about importance here. So if you look at that word protos and how it's used in the New Testament, well, let me give you an example. It's used in Matthew chapter 6 verse 33. I'll bet you're familiar with this. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. You see the word first, seek ye first? It's the same word, protos, used there as in Romans 1.16. Surely, Matthew 6.33 doesn't mean seek first the kingdom of God, and then when you're done doing that, move on to something else? That's not talking about sequence, that's talking about priority. That's saying an ongoing priority. The most important thing in your life always is to seek first the kingdom of God. That's not something to do and be done with. So that's how the word is used there. Well, there's another occurrence of the word in Romans chapter two, the very next chapter. Romans chapter two, verses nine and 10. The word first appears two more times. I know this sounds like a kind of a grammar lesson, but bear with me because my people are under fire, and uh, I think a good proper study of Scripture will perhaps cause people to lay down their arms and give us a break. So that's what I'm after here. Romans 2, 9 and 10, there will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil to the Jew first. Same phrase, same word, protost, and also of the Greek. But glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good. To the Jew first, there it is again, and also to the Greek. Not one commentator I've read, including the ones who simply say, to the Jew first means God shared the gospel with the Jews first, they rejected it, now he's done with them. Not even one of those says, The use of the word first here means something to do and be done with. They say of all the people on earth who deserve punishment, and they're right, it's the Jews. Punishment is more appropriate and relevant to the Jews than any people group on earth because look at the spiritual privileges God gave the Jews. But not only that. If Jews respond in faith to biblical truth of all people on earth, they are first in line. They are the primary group to receive reward. So here's my point. If you're a good student of the Bible, you have to use the same word in a consistent manner. So if the word protost is used not in terms of sequence in Matthew 6.33 not in terms of sequence in Romans 2, 9, and 10, then it can't be in terms of sequence in Romans 1, 16. It means priority. So we could translate, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's God's power to save everyone who believes to the Jew as a number one priority. Now, I know I'm getting real controversial here, but... uh, and I know you're thinking, well, if, if, if he wasn't a Jewish guy, we wouldn't be hearing this. That's right. And, and, and why not? I'm reading the same New Testament you are. I do not have the Jewish version. I got the same Bible you have. I want to know why we aren't hearing more of this. You tell me. You tell me. That's the Bible. The last I checked, we're not allowed to add to it or subtract from it. That's a key phrase in it. All right? So then... If the Jews, evangelism of the Jews is a number one priority, why is it? Well, let me just offer this as a hint. Romans chapter 11, verses 11 and on. I say then, they, Paul is speaking of the Jews, they didn't stumble so as to fall, did they? He answers his own question. May it never be. But by their transgression, the transgression of my people, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Why? To make them, the Jews, jealous. Now, if their transgression, the transgression of the Jews, is in rejecting our own Messiah, if the transgression of Jews is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? When Jews hear the gospel and are saved, how much more? is their blessing for the world when they believe. I didn't write this. I'm not interpreting it. You read it for yourself. That's what it says right there. So I'm speaking about mission strategy tonight. Uh, we think in terms of local missions and foreign missions, and that's legitimate. Uh, we can find uh, that uh, plan in the in the. Uh, In the Bible, for sure, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth, local and foreign missions. But frankly, the emphasis of the New Testament on missions is not local and foreign. It's missions to Jews and missions to Gentiles. You can't show me any other distinction in terms of a missiological strategy in the New Testament. Missions to Jews and also missions to Gentiles, wherever they happen to be located. I defy you. Uh, to show me that I'm wrong about that particular uh, statement. So I want to give you this. And yet, most of our missions organizations, churches, and all the rest are leaving my people out. People are going to the Middle East like crazy, but the last time I checked, there's a lot of Jews there too. Why Why are we avoiding them? What's up? So let me give you an illustration because it's awfully quiet here in the... But this won't break up the tension. This will just make it worse. (laughs) Supposing you lived next to a family, newly arrived in your neighborhood. They just moved into the house next door. It's a single-parent home, let's say. There's a young boy there. You, a man, live next door. You have children of your own. You're a dad, a loving dad, and you want to show love to the boy next door who has no dad. You want to persuade that young boy that, You, a dad yourself, you're willing to care for him as if you were his dad. But in the process of giving that boy, the boy next door, you didn't birth him, it's the boy next door. In the process of giving that boy your attention, you neglect, you even ignore your own kids. What would the boy next door think about you? How could the boy next door ever imagine... In spite of your claims that you really are a loving, caring, and trustworthy dad, you skipped over your own kids. And, folks, that is exactly what I find increasingly happening today in mission strategy and churches and seminaries and commentaries. We are doing the same thing when we skip over the Jews because the Jews are the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, through whom God determined. Now, if you don't like this, argue with him. He could have chose any people group on earth. I'm not trying to defend the Jews. I'm just trying to tell you we're lost without the gospel. Don't deny us the gospel. While you're running around all over the place, what about the Jews? Especially when it says to the Jew First. Folks, when we skip over the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and take the gospel to other people, we are essentially asking them to believe in the goodness and the love of Almighty God, who, by the way, no longer has anything to do with the natural olive branches. We are actually compromising our evangelism and mission strategy. Good night. If you're not a loving dad to your own kids, but try to persuade the kid next door that you are, how are you going to do that? And that's exactly what's happened, it seems to me, as the church has turned its back, largely on Jewish evangelism, it seems to me. Writers of the Bible are Jewish. The temple, it's a Jewish temple. The feasts of Israel are the feasts of Israel the epicenter of the gospel is Jerusalem. The Lord came to a Jewish city and the Lord is returning to a Jewish city. And I guess you know this, the Lord himself came in the flesh as a Jew. I'm not trying to toot my own uh, horn here. I want to know how you can read the Bible except by seeing the Jewish roots of the faith. I want to know how you could do that and treat it accurately. If we don't give priority to taking the gospel to Jews, we are giving the same mixed message to other people the man in the illustration gave to the boy next door. How can the gospel of a Jewish Messiah be relevant to non-Jews? if we act as if it's irrelevant to Jews. The phrase to the Jew first means priority of relevance. If the gospel is relevant to any people group on earth, it is surely relevant to Jews. It's the good news of a Jewish Messiah. How do you bypass the Jews on the way to saving the world? I don't get it. That's a terrible mission strategy, and we're suffering for it, it seems to me. But does this mean that the gospel has to be taken to absolutely every Jew on earth before it can be taken to anyone else? Absolutely not. That's not what this means. Does it mean that everybody called into missions has to focus on the Jews? Absolutely not. It means don't neglect them wherever you are. That's all. Don't bypass them where you are. That's all. Paul went wherever he went to the synagogue first. If he got thrown out of the synagogue, he surely took the the gospel to others. It doesn't mean everyone here is called into Jewish ministry. I didn't say that at all. But it ought to be that those who are not specifically called into Jewish ministry support those who are. Everyone here ought to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. By the way, isn't that a neat idea I came up with? God did. God did. God did. He came, the only city in the Bible we're commanded to pray for is Jerusalem. Psalm 122, verse 6, read it. I didn't write it. I'm just reading it. I'm trying to obey it. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. By the way, Jesus is the prince of peace. That's what it means. Pray that people's hearts there would be opened to the gospel of peace. Pray for the peace. of. So, you don't have to be called into Jewish missions, but some are. We ought to pray for Jewish... Uh, evangelism we ought to uh, give to those who are in full-time work uh, in Jewish uh, ministry and we ought to do what we could to make sure uh, the churches we attend include in their mission strategy and budget to some extent outreach to Jews that's all that's all that's all we're saying Folks. let me give you another illustration Think of the children of Christian parents, children of believing parents. No one in their right mind would say to those parents, you must not share the gospel with other children. We would never say that. But we surely would say it's really wrong if those parents do not make it a priority to share the gospel with their own children. Can you see what it means to the Jew first? It's a priority of relevance. Everything in the Bible is Jewish, once again. I don't know why God did this. I I have no idea, but he did. Old Testament, New Testament, everything about it is Jewish. You can't even understand it unless unless you enter into Jewish culture and tradition behind it. You can't even get it. So nobody's saying to Christian parents, you cannot share the gospel with anybody else's kids. But we would sure say to them, why are you so busy going around your neighborhood sharing the gospel with everybody everybody else's kids? What about your own? So we're not saying first, your kids first and then others. The order doesn't matter. It's not sequence. It's priority. Further illustration. How about the kids who are brought to church? Kids who come to this church, for instance, by parents or friends, or grandparents, whatever it is. Don't you think we have a primary responsibility to make sure we're sharing the gospel with those kids whether it be in vacation Bible school or Sunday program whatever it is. What if we neglected those kids and went around the world doing vacation Bible schools here there and everywhere but offering but but, but withholding the gospel from the kids who come to this church? People think we're crazy. Nobody is saying we shouldn't go do vacation Bible school here there and everywhere, but you don't want to skip over the kids who are here. These kids are priority. Are they more important? Are they better? Nobody said that. Are they more value? No, but it's a priority of relevance. If the gospel is not relevant to the kids who attend a church, how in the world do we have the gall to go about persuading kids who don't attend the church that the gospel is relevant? Don't you see? Folks, something would be wrong. The priority to take the gospel to Jewish people is just the same as the priority to take the gospel to the children of believers and to the children in the church. It's a priority of relevance. A Jewish soul is not worth more than anybody else. Nobody is saying that, but it's a priority of relevance. If a declaration, for instance, of your love is not most relevant to your own children... How can it be relevant to somebody else's children? And Jews are children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. If we ever get to Romans 11, you'll find out that's called the rich root of the olive tree, the patriarchs. Now, why is this even an issue for us to discuss? Why is it that Jews are being left out? Uh, from uh, outreach, evangelistic efforts. And this is increasingly happening. And I'll I'll tell you why. There are many reasons. For one, it's too hard. It's true. It's just really, really hard. My people are very stiff-necked, blind. It's very slow going. I admit it. Uh, Also, it's too complicated. You know, Jews have this history and they know the Bible and, you know, all this. Not true, but that's what people think. So it gets kind of complicated. Also, it's too risky. You could have a Jewish friend who could get mad at you. Worse, you could have a Jewish doctor, you know, about to do surgery on you. <laughs> you want him to like you real fine when that's happening. So those are reasons maybe why the gospel is withheld from Jews. But there's another reason of a theological uh, kind. And this is the reason why an increasing number of churches and whole denominations have declared their their decision to cease and desist in their efforts to evangelize the Jews. I can read you things that to me are appalling, but here's why. It's something called the dual covenant theory. Dual, as in two. Those groups say God has two covenants by which people could be saved. One is for the Jews. One is for the Gentiles. One is the covenant through Moses. That's how Jews are saved, through the law of Moses. The other is the covenant through Jesus. That's how Gentiles are saved. That's dual covenant theory. So they say the reason why we're not sharing the gospel with Jews is the Jews don't need Jesus they're saved through Moses. Only Gentiles need Jesus. If you think that's an obscure theology, I'm trying to tell you as one who tries to keep his nose to the ground, whole denominations have opted for dual covenant theology. Whole denominations. Do a Google search or Bing if you prefer. Type in the word and you will see whole denominations issuing policy statements. We no longer will offend our Jewish friends, ancient in their traditions, with the gospel message which they need not to be offended by since they are in right relationship with Almighty God to the extent that they submit themselves to the law of God given through their great rabbi Moses. Doesn't that sound good? You show me one Jew who's able to do the law of Moses. The law is given to define our sin. It can't save us, for crying out loud. Listen to me. Uh, The Nazis put my people in ovens. That's not a good thing. I'll tell you what's the worst thing. Withhold the gospel from my people, and you have just destined us to eternal hell. If a Jew who went in the ovens knew the Lord Jesus, they die here but we'll live forevermore. The worst form of anti-Semitism is to say, my people don't need to hear the gospel. We're saved another way. Don't fall into that. It's happening like, listen to me. Apparently, Paul did not hold to dual covenant theory because he said in Romans 10:1, brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them, the Jews, is for their salvation. Now, why would the great theologian of the day, the Apostle Paul, say my heart's desire and my prayer to God for Jewish people is for this heaven? If they're already saved through Moses, why would Paul say something like that? It's sheer enough. Forget about Paul. The Lord Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. Nobody, no Jew, no Gentile comes to the Father but through me folks don't buy into that new into that dual covenant theology there's a famous preacher in this state who is known for his support of israel i'm thankful for that but in his quest to befriend the jews he withholds the gospel from them my people don't need friends we need to be saved by the savior whose name is jesus christ You can use friendship as a means to the end. But if you get to the point where you don't want to risk a friendship by sharing the gospel with a Jew, you're thinking more of yourself than your Jewish friend. Don't do that. Don't do that. Now back to the words of this key verse. I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is. Do you have that in your Bible? For it is. Do you remember years ago when the word is? Uh, attracted a lot of attention. One of our presidents was stumbling over it, trying to define it and all the rest. Well, I bypassed his definition, um, and, uh, and I studied it. It's a Greek word. You see that little word, is? I'm not ashamed to gossip for it. It is. It's in the present tense in Greek. That's like an ing word. That means ongoing stuff. That means it continues. That's what the present tense in Greek is, like running, eating. You, you keep doing it. Present tense, what's the point? The gospel is always the power of God for salvation. I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is what? For a while? Does it say it was? Does it say only on Sundays? No, 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 no. It is always, the gospel is always, to every people group in every day, the gospel is, present tense, always the power of God for salvation everyone goes amen for that that's okay there you go thanks for playing Um, but here's the deal but you don't get amens for the rest the word is also connects with the rest of the verse so listen if the gospel is always the power of God for salvation then the gospel is always to the Jew first It's the same word in the present tense, is. If you're willing to tell me the gospel only at some point in history was powerful unto salvation but no longer is, then I'll accept your position that the gospel is no longer primarily for Jews. But if you say, oh, no, perish the thought. The gospel is always the power of God for salvation. The same word is controls every phrase in the verse. If the gospel is always the power of God for salvation, then it is always that for everyone who believes, and it is always to the Jew first. It's not a function of time. It's a function of reality in in every day. Folks, when the Savior came into the world, He did not go to Rome. He went to Jerusalem and the Jews. He became a Jew. And when the Savior returns, his feet will sit down on the Mount of Olives. That's in Jerusalem. It's not going to be Mount Rainier, Mount Kilimanjaro, Mount anything. It's the Mount of Olives. His priority emphasis in order to bring salvation to the world was, is, and will be to bring salvation to the Jew first and also to everybody else. It's the same message by which we must be saved. But God's mission strategy for reaching the world is to embrace the most undeserving people on earth, manifest grace in his forever eternal covenant with them, and demonstrate through them to the rest of the world a Savior whose grace is greater than all our sin. You leave out the Jewish context and the Jews you're sharing a gospel totally out of context, it seems to me. I wonder if our missions is suffering for that, for, that, for that reason. If we don't see that the gospel message is peculiarly relevant to Jewish people, how can it possibly be relevant to Gentile people? I'm grateful for the person who in the military didn't leave me out. He risked our friendship, shared the gospel with me, and nurtured me in the faith. He never met a Jew in his life. He was a Gentile believer, took a risk, didn't worry about complications and rejection and all the rest, and knew there's only one road to salvation, and that's the cross, and he shared it with me. I'm so grateful. The gospel is God's power that changed my life. I'm grateful for an organization called Chosen People Ministries. Our church supports them. We had one of their representatives here with us a few weeks ago. I'm grateful because one of their missionaries led my father to the Lord. Another baptized both of my parents in a swimming pool in an apartment complex in New York City. I'm grateful to another organization called Jews for Jesus, also recognized by our church, who helped me financed my seminary education and gave me training in street evangelism and other forms of evangelism. And I'm grateful to an organization called Hope for Israel. Our church also supports them. We heard from their leader a month or so ago here. I'm grateful to Hope for Israel. That's the organization we connect with when we do our trips to Israel. Uh, that's the person in organization who gives us opportunity to shine for Christ in a fairly dark, particular place. Folks, don't leave out the Jews. Don't skip over them. Uh, Don't try to make the Bible non-Jewish and don't think I'm doing this just because I'm, I'm Jewish. I call myself a student of the Bible. You read the Bible and you show me one book of the Bible that isn't in a blatantly Jewish context. Now, folks, tonight is a Jewish holiday. Happy New Year, Rosh Hashanah. It's our civil New Year, Rosh, head, Hashanah, head of the year. We actually have two New Years. One is religious, one is civil. This New Year is not a time of merrymaking. It is inaugurated by the blowing of a trumpet. We call it a shofar. And so this is called in the Bible. You can read it. It's in Leviticus 23. You say, Stuart, enough of your culture. I didn't write it. It's in Leviticus 23. It's called the Feast of Trumpets or Yom Teruah. Yom Teruah. We blow a trumpet. It signals a time of reflection, not merrymaking, a reflection and introspection. And for 10 days from tonight... Rosh Hashanah until Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Ten days. We call them the ten days of awe, the Yamim Noraim. <sighs> we think about how we've sinned. We think about the debt we owe a holy God. We confess our sin. We repent of it. <laughs> and then sadly. We promise God even more effort not to sin again. We manifest works, we fast, we make contributions to the poor. We do all these things, we energize ourselves to try to persuade God to back off. We try to appease him in our own works while denying the finished work of the Jewish Messiah, Yeshua, Jesus the Messiah. It's kind of a sad time. My people believe during these 10 days God opens books, three books in particular. One is a book containing the names of all wicked people. One is a book containing the names of all righteous people. It's a short book. And then a third book is a book containing the names of in-betweeners. That's most of us. We're neither so hot uh, and we're not not that good, not that bad. And so on this period of time, these days of awe, we repent, we fast, we make promises, we make vows, we give what we call tzedakah, uh, charity, money, whatever it is, uh, hoping that God would put our name, inscribe our name in the book of the righteous, we call it the book of life. In fact, we wish each other, it's a common greeting on Rosh Hashanah, you hear it all over the world. Uh, tova may you be inscribed in the book of life for a good year. For this next year, may God keep your name in the book of life. Think about this. Think about how uncertain it is. All it is is a wish, wishful thinking. You know, tova we hope you make the cut. It is, it's it's how, how uncertain and how untemporary How temporary. It's just for a year. May your name remain in the book of life for a year. And, and, And look how based on our own merits and works it is. It's a terrible kind of a thing. But the Jewish apostle Paul, Rabbi Shaul was his name, tells us of a Jewish Messiah, Yeshua is his name, who died for sin so that if we accept him, our names will be inscribed in the book of eternal life. Nothing uncertain about it. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abide. There's no uncertainty about it. It's not temporary. It's for eternity. It's not based upon our meritorious service. Thank you for your service. God won't say that to us. He'll say, your service falls short. All have sinned and fallen short. Your own prophet, he'll tell us. Isaiah said, all your righteous deeds, all your mitzvot, are like filthy rags. Oh, no. Based upon the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and his merits, our names, Jewish names, Gentile names, are forever inscribed in the book of life. And based upon this Jewish thinking, another Jewish apostle named Yohanan, John says in the last book of the Bible, Revelation 21, verse 27, nothing unclean. And no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it. It's the new Jerusalem. It's not Pearland, Texas. It's the new Jerusalem. Nobody unclean can come into it but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of lies. If that has meaning to anybody, it ought to have meaning to my people. You don't have to explain to us what the book of life is. That's our custom. We know that. Take us the rest of the way. Show us the fulfillment. Show us how our name can be inscribed in the book of life, not based on on uncertainty in our own works, based upon the blood of our own Messiah, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't leave us out. Don't skip over us in a quest to win the rest of the world. We're key in mission strategy to the Jew first. I didn't write it. I'm just reading it. I'm trying to live by it. How about you? Why not you? What about my people? What about the apple of God's eye? What about his people? I will bless those who bless thee, and I will curse those who curse thee. Why am I so lathered up about this? Because we're in a day when the nations of the world are turning against my people like crazy. There's terrible things happening in Syria. And Assad says, if we issue a strike against against Syria, they're going to bomb Israel. Could you please tell me the connection? Bomb us! Why are the Jews always dragged into it? Whomever God chooses will suffer. He didn't choose us based on our Jewishness to be saved. He chose us to be a light to the Gentiles. We have failed miserably. And the Jews, Jew, Jesus the Messiah, has fulfilled what we failed to do. He's a light unto the Gentiles. But he has never, ever bypassed Jews. Neither should, neither should we. Folks, people need the Lord, for sure. All people need the Lord. Gentile people need the Lord. Jewish people need the Lord. <clears throat> but if the Jewish Lord is suddenly no longer relevant to Jewish people, how can we persuasively offer him to other people? It makes no sense to me. I'm thrilled to be in the body of Christ, made up of all different kinds of people. But I'm deeply concerned about my people, the church, (laughs) forgetting about the people group. I am biologically attached to Jewish people, deeply, deeply concerned. I want them (laughs) as well. So does the Lord to have their names inscribed in the Book of Life, just as ours is. So let me just close by uttering these words to you, the same kind of greeting we utter today throughout the world, L'Shanah Tovah Tikhatevim. May your name be inscribed in the Book of Life for this next year. Not good enough. I don't like it. May your name be inscribed in the Lamb's book of eternal life based upon your confidence, your trust, your belief in what he did for your sin and mine in coming, in becoming enfleshed, in suffering, in being impaled on a cross, in suffering the greatest humiliation known to mankind, in dying, the evidence of which that he was buried, (laughs) and then escaping the throes of death to win victory over the last enemy so that all of us who by faith accept the Lord Jesus also, also have won victory over the last enemy, death, and enter into abundant life with him now, eternal life with him forever. Folks, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, are you? It's the power of God. It's the only thing that can save a person from whatever it is that has them, the number one problem being sin. It's available to absolutely everyone who believes to the Jew first. Also to everybody else. That God chose any people group through whom he would effect a plan of salvation, his sheer and utter grace. We can't say, why did you choose the Jews? We ought to say, why did you choose anybody? He took a particular person, Abraham, put him in a particular place, the land of Canaan, we now know it as Israel, gave him particular covenants, uh, said through you and a particular people group emanating from your loins, I will bless the world. And from that particular group shall come the Redeemer of Israel. And from redeemed Israel, the gospel will go forth to everybody on earth so that one day they will all say, Come, let us go up to the city of the great king. It's not Rome. It's not Mecca. It's not Houston, Texas. It's Jerusalem. It's Jerusalem. Lord Jesus. Thank you for the plan of redemption, which is in some ways complex for us, and other ways simple. We could understand it. All of us are apart from you by our sin. It's not your doing. It's our doing. It's our nature. We can't even stop it. It has erected a barrier. Thank you, O oh God, for effecting a plan of redemption through the most unlikely people group on earth, through whom came a Messiah, perfect in every way, and yet in flesh, just like us, on the divine side, Son of God, on the human side, Son of Man, the perfect bridge between God and man. Thank you, O oh God, for sending your Son as atonement for the sins of Jews and the sins of Gentiles. And even as I speak to you now, Lord Jesus, I'm using Hebrew kinds of words like atonement. It's your doing that the redemptive plan would be put in a Jewish context. It's our undoing historically that we've made it look so foreign to Jews now. My people can hardly imagine becoming a Christian. Oh God, I pray... That as the world of churches and seminaries and theologians go their way, we here would go the way of Scripture. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your ways which are perfect. This we pray in your name. Amen.